Suddenly, I see you're back at the office. Oh, yes. And I'm so happy. Our lab was actually never officially closed because we are isolated uh, research building. It was mm. semi-essential. And yeah, we have a lot of lab work. You're semi-essential. Uh, uh, I was never <laughs> essential anywhere. I was always at the very last of the list. <laughs> but perhaps soon I'll also be able to work from Utrecht University again. Yeah, I'm looking forward to recording in the studio with you. Yeah, man. All right. Welcome, everybody, to the Road to Open Science podcast, your guide on everything open at Utrecht University and beyond. And today, later in this episode, we'll be speaking with Rut van Vele and Judith de Haan about the Open Science Monitor of Utrecht University, where they actually tried to get a little gauge of how much of open science practices are actually known by people, what is their willing engage with them and are they actually doing that but we will also be speaking mainly about the team science that went into the project and all of the open aspects that turned out to be perhaps slightly more difficult than they thought it would at the very onset of the program oh wait 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 wait! i mean there is a monitor somewhere and you actually look at what people do with open science and they yeah, have man. also knobs to turn yeah, so, so sometimes if you come up with new policy and a culture change, stuff like that, you also want to see whether it's actually working. <laughs> oh, that's very manipulative, isn't it? <laughs> Is it now? <laughs> I yeah, thought it, it sounds very... Uh, 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 okay, don't let me use that. It sounds very big corporation <laughs> conspiracy. <laughs> no, it, it, it actually, uh, uh, from the research point of view, so it's also published as a preprint and uh, available upon request. I know you love this. Is the data <laughs> from the monitor, but it's 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 also no no. So hey, okay, we're getting I'm, there. I'm curious, let's, but more let's on see. that later. <laughs> First, uh, I wanted to know, Sunny, did you get a chance to listen to our holiday special? Oh yeah, yeah, and I really loved it. Uh, it, it was also for me. Uh, an eye-opener because there were also a lot of people I talked to on the road to open science that to say, oh, this person is coming from a very weird corner, which I mm -hmm. didn't hear. And that episode and that research sort of formalized it. And now they have names. Uh, yeah. So perhaps nice. if you haven't listened to our previous episode on the faces of open science, this is our way to sort of uh, lure you there. But we had a holiday special uh, on another research project, which looked at the different reasons and motivations for people to be engaged with the open science movement. And as, as Sunny is saying, it's actually a very wide diversity uh, of people who are involved. And it was, I think, also a beautiful episode to sort of do writing history as we're making it. <laughs> yeah, uh, take control of the narrative perhaps in parts. But it also shows to me that you can really not talk about these open science people because no. there is no one sort of crowd. They are very, very different uh, motivations to engage with open science. Yes, and we're happy to have all of you. But first, on to the news. Newsy news, what do you have? What happened, man? I, I have the feeling that it was so incredibly busy this start of the year. And especially everything culminated last, like Friday the 4th of February, when there was not one, but two conferences on recognition and, and rewards and on open science. I was completely, like, I completely drained of energy at the end of the weekend, but also had a lot of new energy to go forward. But yeah, you, full Fridays. You actually were uh, part of one of the sessions on uh, the Recognition and Rewards Festival. Can you tell us a little bit about what you spoke with people about? 
Yes, so I think this is the third Recognition and Reward Festival, and I was invited by a session organized by the NWO, the fighting agency, which for the first time had given grants directed at open science. And the session I had was about evaluating team science. But it was very funny because there were eight parallel sessions about team science. Yeah, man. Uh, quite interesting. It's the thing of the moment. And 700 people talking about it, I said, wow, you can talk so much about team science. It was all maybe long overdue, but there were a lot to say. And my, in my session, I also learned a lot about existing networks. For example, the four technical universities, how they are doing this uh, data curation and how they learn from each other. So a couple of the people who got the grant came and talked about the projects, but also shared uh, their tips and tricks of uh, how to keep a team and not surprisingly, the most emphasis was that doing team science is about managing community. Mm-hmm. And everybody said that, you know, you should take this very serious, how to build your community and community coordination is a, is a full-time job. Yeah. So you need good academic leadership to actually have a good working team. Yeah. You need the understanding of, of how, what drives people and why people uh, do what they do. And it's not always the love of the science that they come and just do it for you uh, because no. you are a nice guy. Yeah. I think in total there were like 27 uh, sessions that were all in parallel, so there's way too little time in our quick, witty podcast to discuss all of them. Um, what was interesting, though, is always to see like we're one year further and uh, people are sort of staking out their positions. There were position papers being published uh, come leading up to the uh, Recognition and Reward Festival. Open letters was also, I found very interesting. I'll put a little link in the show notes to a thread that I made about it. It's the Royal Academy of Sciences uh, internal report of their institutes on recognition and rewards, which I found very uh, engaging to read and also in because it turns out that people there have very similar views on what recognition awards should be like. And one of the things I found very interesting, which, which of course is logical, is that people from the institutes of the Royal Academy are not often actively engaged in education, for example, but they do indicate that they want to be more involved in this. So I think actually this discussion in, uh, as a whole opens up a debate and also possibilities that you might not have thought about before. And a similar thing went for the NFU, which is the organization of the university medical centers. I, I saw a similar thing in their report as well. I'll also include that thread because I read it all. But it, it was interesting to, for people to stake out their positions in uh, in this festival context. And it, it it's also history in the making in a way. Yeah. And as Ineke Slater, she is now the head of the KNW, the Royal Academy, and she was also at the table chairing a couple of these discussions, the uh, closing discussion, for example, was saying that a lot of these discussions come to them. I think it has been an opportunity, this discussion of recognition and rewards for you know, leaders of academia to come together and say, what do you care in your organization or your in your uh, group about uh, leading science and then they talk about it and also share their concerns it was very clear that she is aware of the concerns which are faced down here and there uh, sometimes in the newspaper Mm -hmm. and well they have discussed it and they have considered it and yet the reports like this are the outcome of such discussions and it has been a very long process clearly so I, i found that the degree of awareness quite high in the people who were engaging in that discussion. 
I see what you're saying. Yeah, and we also got to, we actually were introduced to two new players in the field, which of course, for one of them is our Minister for Education, Science and Culture, uh, Robert Dijkgraaf, who had an opening speech. He, uh, he made time in the schedule because there's actually Ministerraad on Friday morning, so that must have been difficult, but he was there. It was very positive, I think. And the same thing for Marcel Levy, the president, I think, of NWO, also getting the chance to respond to an open letter that week, staked out his position very clearly, saying, I'm a funder, so I look at research, but research is more than just some previous good publications. I also want to look at the broader capabilities of the people who are, for example, uh, trying to apply for a grant and sort of made an end to the discussion about quantitative and qualitative metrics, uh, also on the myths that are out there, basically stating, yes, so qualitative and quantitative measures are both okay. There's just a couple of exceptions of metrics we do not use because they have very big problems age index slash GIF. Yeah, I mean, we uh, we base our evaluation based on evidence. I, yeah. I, I wish that's very good. He also mentioned something about not signing uh, letters. And she said, this is not S- the way to do Stop sending each other letters. I think that, ah, <laughs> that was the point. Doesn't he has a has a column in the Trau newspaper? Yeah, it's e- easier for him to say, I think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I found also the message of uh, Robert Dijkraaf, our minister, Quite interesting, who said, actually, yes, we are the front runner on this recognition reward, and let's make it an export product. <laughs> yeah. And, and he's also, quite a forefront on it, on the European front, uh, which connects to the next event, which was happening on the same day and the day after. And you were at that one, right? Yeah, so that, this was the OSEC, the Open Science European Conference of 2022, which was, of course, because France is now the president of the European Union for half a year. It was hosted in Paris. And what I found interesting, especially in the European context, uh, open science is sort of the umbrella and recognition and reward uh, naturally f- uh, flown out of that one. So it, it is part of this program, but it was also the major part, I think. So there there were sessions on fair data and, and uh, fair software. There are sessions on open access, which I'll get to later. But uh, there was uh, two sessions plus a sort of reflection on those two sessions on recognition and rewards with people from all across the spectrum and not even just from Europe. Uh, they were enlightening and interesting and in showing that this, this, this open science movement on a European level is taking this very seriously. Uh, we t- also discussed the Ouvrir le science the French open science plan uh, earlier on our podcast, I think in episode eight, uh, and it also hooks into this, that this should be all seen as part of a bigger transition. And to sort of give a final ring to it, uh, there was also a Paris call on research assessment that was uh, published at the Saturday session, which I think institutes and governments are now open to also... uh, become a signatory of and I heard that the number was somewhere around 200 already so we can sign now (laughs) we can sign something that's beautiful right (laughs) I found it I I didn't attend much of it but I found I looked at the program I found actually the contribution from Global South and South America also pretty impressive yeah and it's very good because they are in some aspects quite ahead and they have done this way before we thought of the name recognition rewards and we can learn quite a bit from them. Yeah, and another thing we can learn from them and are learning from them is the way that they approach open access. And uh, for a long time, they've been saying, especially in the, the scene of Plan S and uh, our, our, our like dive into article processing costs, etc., that that they just don't have that system there. There are no major 
commercial publishers. There's actually mostly academic-run platforms that do publication for them. And it's a very prestigious position to actually be in. So this, this is what we call Diamond Open Access. And Johan Rorik, as a champion of uh, Plan S, also published an action plan for Diamond Open Access with some real money linked to it, as I saw it, to start uh, innovating in the South American way in Europe with Diamond Open Access platforms. Fantastic. Yeah. And, and also, I'm starting to see that outside the academic bubble that we live in, open access is also getting some traction and interest. I read an article that was sent to me by like seven people uh, on The Correspondent, uh, which we'll hook to in the show notes. It's really something you can perhaps send your family members or friends who are not really into the topic yet, but this is a very nice way to get into it. Yeah, this is this progressive news platform, which also has discussions and yeah. it's actually setting the intellectual agenda to some crowds. Yeah, and, and in the same sphere, I think I, I was very uh, interested to see an article on The Economist. Uh, <laughs> the other side. Uh, yeah, and, and exactly. And it, it said literally the preprints on the coronavirus have been impressively reliable. So there was a little study done to see how much preprinted articles changed in the reviewing process until they were actually published in a journal or on another uh, uh, platform. And it basically stated that people know that when they're putting information about the coronavirus into the world in the form of a preprint, they have to have heavy scrutinize on themselves before they actually publish it. Yeah, but it's also not complete open gateway. There's a lot of screening going on, especially in the time yeah. of COVID. Like, for example, MedArchive had a lot of pre-screening of these preprints, which actually was quality control. I remember that people had to wait, I don't know, a day or two to, to appear, and they were surprised, isn't this a preprint server? But I think that was really, really uh, important contribution, this pre-review of the preprints. Yeah. And in the in the sort of discussion of this Joe Rogan, if you have followed on the podcast and the signatures, I think the scientists have got this preprint right this time. Yeah. And I think other platforms like a Spotify, maybe they can learn a bit from the scientists. <laughs> they can learn something from it. Yeah, but it, in a way, so everybody's always saying like, yeah, oh, this is just a preprint, be very, very careful with it. And then, of course, you should be careful and scrutinize all types of academic information and knowledge. But in a way, this edge to it saying that preprints are always like bullshit or something. No, that's that's really not the case. And also I found interesting in that article to see that self-correcting mechanism of science that we all, always want to rant on about, like how wonderfully self-correcting science is in preprints and in the way that you can actually comment on it and uh, do open peer review on it. It actually works. Yeah, exactly. Open peer review is the future. I fully agree on that. Man. And we had a full episode about that. The exactly, debate. we do, yeah. <laughs> we've, we've already used 15 minutes of our listeners' time. So it's, I think, now really time to move on to the interview. What do you think, Sandy? Uh, I want to actually come back maybe short to the mm -hmm. discussion of the uh, strategy evaluation protocols because it is something that tickles me a little bit. On all these discussions, the Recognition Reward Festival was also briefly mentioned, but not totally. And I found it a bit weird because a lot of this discussion that we have now is about system change and mm -hmm. the strategy evaluation protocol the new one is actually part of this system change and it can actually make a lot of discussions much easier yeah because when we discuss recognition reward on the individual level then everybody says oh you want to expect so many things from me and just let me do my research or you want to actually take 
you know, my most worthy products of the past uh, out of my CV because uh, this was not in my contract or my psychological contract. While this is all about the system, it's about the team. And yeah. that's where the strategy evaluation protocol comes. Yeah, let's maybe help our listeners a little bit. Uh, this this is like the four annual, the four yearly or six yearly evaluation that you do as a research institute or a research unit, right? So a committee comes yeah. by and they check on whether you're uh, you're they're accrediting your research quality, and this the way they do it, which is the protocol, has changed significantly from the previous version to this version. Exactly. So it has been a major change and it is actually very much in line with the team science and the yeah. scope of uh, the Erkenne Vardere, the Recognition Award in the Netherlands, including open science, but also PhD policy. How are you going to deal with sort of the durability of your research programs, but also the careers of your uh, people? And it's all in there. And it's very much different from the previous way which people used to, you know, ask people to collect their numbers and then put all the numbers in one table and then add an introduction to it. So it's a big change and it still actually asks more from the institutes because they now really have to have a strategy which looks forward mm -hmm. and that is going to be evaluated. And it has all these aspects as a team, as an institute. And I see that if the connection is made more boldly that this recognition and rewards is about also evaluation of the institute as a whole, then people maybe realize that I should not do everything, but I should identify my role in the university, in my unit, and then make sure that actually my unit is uh, sort of coherently showing up high quality works in all the other aspects if I sum up all the elements of it. Yeah. So if my institute gets sort of bad marks on public engagement, it's not necessarily my problem if we had made an agreement before that, well, I'm going to do the research part and somebody else is going to do the public engagement part. So it's actually the institute issue. And it also makes it much more clear that people can have these career paths that are diverse. And in discussion with their unit to say, oh, there is a hole here. I'm going to fill this hole. And I'm expecting in five years, 10 years from now to be actually getting the credit for yeah. filling this hole. Yeah, makes sense. And as to that, coming back to an earlier point we mentioned about academic leadership, this is something I think we all know is not something that comes natural to everybody. And also we've sort of for 30 or 40 years uh, made research all about one thing and that is publishing and that changing that to a broader perspective takes time. And also you need to sort of be trained in this or actually be uh, inspired by others. And that's why Utah University is now starting a recognition and reward workshop, especially for people who are team leaders of academic and also non-academic themes. And I'm putting an interview with Stans de Haas, who is the chair of the recognition program together with Paul Bosley, in our show notes. And in there, there's a little box with an email that if you are a leader at Utrecht University, you can actually apply or uh, signal interest in this course. Yeah, yeah. I found it the discussion would be much more smooth if we do not compare people with each other yeah. in their performance, but units with each other. Yeah. And then the units, of course, should justify why they think they have performed so well in this and that in comparison with other units. But it's not about the individuals to perform. And that's the wrong path to just trickle down all the evaluation down to the smallest unit and then put it on the shoulder of, I don't know, one PI or one research group to say, oh, you have to be good in all these five aspects. Yeah. Because that's not the unit that we can perform at the quality that we expect from the university in all aspects of the recognition and rewards. 
Which gives us a beautiful segue to the team science we're discussing with Rut van Vele and Judith de Haan, who I interviewed very recently on the Open Science Monitor we were talking about at the top. So have fun and be engaged in listening to the interview with Rut van Vele and Judith de Haan. So we are now joined in our online studio by two guests. Uh, one is Ruth van Velen, assistant professor at the Department of Social Health and Organizational Psychology. And in her work, she mainly focuses on the social identity and diversity in the workplace. And we're joined by Judith de Haan, program manager of the University of Utrecht Open Science Program. And together with a big team of colleagues, they worked on the Open Science Monitor of 2020. And they are currently in the run-up to set out the monitor for 2022. So let's start with you, Ruth. How did you get involved with Open Science and how did you get involved with the Open Science Monitor? Um, I got involved uh, through my ex-roommate, Luke Brinkman, with whom uh, uh, he was a member of the OSCU and he told me about Open Science and he sort of lured me in because I had um, conversations with him about what it means to conduct open science. In my own research, I work a lot with organizations to investigate organizational culture, uh, stereotypes about professions and how these uh, stereotypes may influence the professional identification of employees and particularly also how it may hinder uh, women or men to choose for certain types mm -hmm. of professions. For example, when we think about a nurse, we often see a female person, that is the stereotype that we have. And these stereotypes uh, also uh, direct our behavior. So they are sort of self-fulfilling prophecies. And in conducting research with organizations, um, you, you have to protect the organizations as well as the employees that you are working with. So you're dealing with all these ethical issues and how to protect the participants, how to protect the data. And then on the other hand, there's the open science and that you should make everything open and this idealism on how to do that. And so when Luke told me about this upcoming monitor and this research, he said, you should be involved in the team because we need someone with a critical mind and a, mm. maybe a research perspective on how to do this. So this is how I got uh, how I got involved. Yeah. Idealism and a critical mind. Those are good words to hear in the first two minutes of an interview. <laughs> uh, so what about you, Judith? So how I got into uh, open science uh, in the first place was already a few years back. So I'm working at the open science program now for um, more than two and a half years now. But uh, during my PhD, I got interested uh, in open science uh, in general because there I run into certain problems and I thought we need to be more open and more transparent to prevent these kind of issues from happening. So I started at working at the open science program and then very early on, we were discussing with the open science platform what our goals and ambitions were for the different tracks that we have in the program and we thought we also need to monitor whether what we're actually doing is um, is reaching our goal like our bigger goal that people will actually work on open science practices and are more uh, more open about what they're doing so we need some sort of survey to see how uh, employees at the University of Utrecht are engaging with these practices so that was the starting point for us for working at the open science uh, on this open science monitor. Yeah, so we're basically talking about a survey for employees of the Utrecht University 
questioning them on whether they like know about open science or are involved with open science practices? How deep did it go? I think I added the more uh, practical uh, questions in the survey for um, asking people whether they are uh, pre-registered in their uh, research, if they're open about their data, if they publish open access. But then uh, uh, I think the addition of questions from Ruth were more on a behavioral kind of level. So Ruth can probably highlight that better. Yeah, so in terms of monitoring, I think the ambition was to indeed create a starting point to measure. So how aware are academics? How uh, positive is their attitude towards different open science practices? And do they actually manage to uh, translate that into behavior, which is, of course, very, these are very psychological uh, concepts. So from that sense, um, I, I provided input on how to do that. Um, but open science is, of course, also a culture change that is going on within the university. And it uh, changes the way academics look at themselves and answer the question, who am I as a professional, as an academic? And that, of course, bridges very closely to my research interest because when we shake up the meaning of a professional identity, it can either mean that more people feel included or other people start feeling excluded. So exactly, yeah. learning about that uh, from more of a psychological or an identity perspective is also very interesting. And that was also part of the goal to, to sort of measure the more intangible culture and identity aspects of, of open science. And that's what we're trying to get into uh, more now. Yeah, that's actually an interesting approach. Basically, you're saying we have these ideas and policies. Will they also actually result in a culture change? To that effect, it's sort of a benchmark. Uh, it also leaves a vulnerability for, I think, also the open science program because you're basically putting yourself out there and showing we're trying to create a change, but is it actually happening? And in that sense, I really, inter uh, really liked your project because you try to do things as openly as possible. To uh, it, would be, it would be very strange if you wouldn't be open about your research project if you're actually researching open science. But maybe, uh, Ruth, I can start with you. What are ways in which you try to be as open as possible and what kind of limitations did you run into? Um... If you collect data in an organization and you want to learn who is open to different open science practices, whether there are differences between faculties or groups of people who may not feel involved, it means that you have to classify people into small groups. And that mm -hmm. also means that anonymity of data collection processes becomes a challenge, becomes difficult. And then it means that you have to make very um, clear agreements about who has access to that data, what segments of the data, whether the way that you collect things is ethically sound and responsible, because you shouldn't ask things that you might not need just for fun. You do not want to bother a participant with things that that eventually you don't end up reporting. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's things about ethics and anonymity protection uh, that sort of make it really difficult to adhere to complete openness with regards to the data. There are demographic, there's demographic information that you simply cannot share or may not want to share. 
to protect the people that you are asking. And that is a, a tension field that I, as a researcher, am constantly in. And I think during the course of the last two years, we really felt that tension sometimes because we were working with people who really wanted to conduct open science in, in an open science way. And then it turns out that the meaning of that is sometimes difficult to, to make practical, basically. Yeah, and then maybe for clarification, you can you can publish about like averages and about subdisciplines and maybe analysis you do, but actually opening up a data set with groups in there that you can specify that becomes so small is actually against a couple of rules like the GDPR and stuff. Exactly, yes. And then when you do open up that segment of the data that would be safe to, sh safe to share, what is it exactly that you're sharing in terms of the relevance of that information, given that the analysis that you did are controlling for stuff? And it, I mean, it's a technical story, but, but open science for me also means that you have to be aware that, that the thing that you're sharing is, is valuable and not just throwing a bunch of numbers uh, <laughs> over, the, over the fence, so to say, <laughs> um, that other researchers might feel like, I'm not getting the same results as you did. Uh, what, what did you give me? What is this data? So it's also about if you share data, you also have to ha take responsibility for the quality of what you're sharing and the usability of that. And that's also a tension field. So maybe maybe I can add because we are immediately jumping into I think the main discussion that we had in our team, which yeah. was opening up the data. Because of course, what you're saying, Siko, we wanted to be as open as possible uh, in our whole process. I think I can add later also some other things that we did to try to be open and transparent in what we're doing. But about the data, I think we had we had a lot of discussions. Like, um, what can you do to be to be open about your data? And I think for me. Um, what it, it gave me a, like a new insight because I thought, okay, let's just open up whatever we can can open up, right? Just uh, lose some of the demographics, and then you can't find who whoever said it because it's not traceable back to one person. But then Rut was saying, yeah, but what are you sharing then? And also, if you make a decision now on, okay, maybe uh, age or function group, we can still leave in the data set, it will prevent you from later on to share other information because then if people are go going to combine it, uh, mm. it, it can be traceable back. So you have to be very thoughtful on what you want to share and why, because it will, it will limit you in the future. And I think for me, it made me realize that having your data fair, so findable, accessible, interoperable and reusable is more important than being open only so having it out there having the metadata open so showing what we did what uh how our data uh, looks like so so the descriptives of our data is more important because now people can find us they can contact us and if they um if they want to if they have a specific question they can reach us and we can see what we can do and help them out and furthermore we're also looking for technical solutions to see if it's possible to be um, accessible without intervenience of a, a human person who is going to help with this actual research question, but that's, that's quite challenging and it can become very pricey uh, quickly, I think. Yeah. So, um, it, because it that's, 
always the ideal that you would have this data set somewhere that somebody else would be able to access and actually use for maybe another analysis or add it to another set. But then the real real life personal thing here is that you as an employee who might not even work at Utrecht University anymore are going to be the one who gets the email from this guy in another country far away please help me yes <laughs> and and that of course that's that's not that's time that is not allotted to you it's not given to you it's it's an it's an extra hassle yeah but then yeah. when i hear you saying if you try to find a technical solution to this problem that can also be quite costly so is it then an ideal and not more than that i think it's good to think about uh about this and discuss this what you want to do and find uh find a solution that will fit the problem the best and that might not be just being open on everything um also with the technical solution it feels you feel it um then you think that there is no person involved but there might be someone who needs to maintain a website or Mm -hmm. uh, depending on what kind of solution you're looking for um so there might still be persons involved that need to know uh, about this data set so yeah what the best solution is i think the first step to do is making your metadata open and be open about the process. That's, I think, also why we want to make this podcast to show also that we are struggling as an open science program, but also as the open science monitor with being open on everything. And that um, that this is just a process that we're going through together. Uh, and we also feel these issues. Yeah. And so we've talked about data quite a lot, metadata. Did you also like open up the code for the analysis or other parts of your process? You did? So, yeah, we did open up other parts of our process. I think the first thing is that we pre-register our uh, study. So I think we okay, were open yeah. about uh, what, what we're planning to do. We were also uh, open in making these uh, questions together. So we involved a lot of people um, having stakeholders uh, approached from the University of Utrecht who thought along on these questions we were open during the process, which was quite interesting because if you're saying, okay, now we we have the first data coming in, uh, people are super excited. So they, they start emailing you like, oh, when when is the data uh, uh, analyzed and can we have a look? But uh, of course, we also uh, need time to, to process this. So, and with the COVID situation, we also had some issues with, with uh, working on this. So it, it took a while to actually have the report ready. So that's that I think, yeah, if you, if you are open, you also get these kind of things that um, you have to respond to that as well. And yeah, maybe it, people, keep people waiting a little bit. Yes. And if I listen to all of this, it seems like quite a lot of work. So maybe this question for Rut, would you, knowing all of this, do it all again the same way? Yes, because I think um, many academics go through this process, at least what I know from my colleagues and my own experience, these are the things that, 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 that you deal with as a researcher when you collect data from human participants. And the decisions that you have to make, trying to do it as best as you can, are often made individually and on the last moment. Uh, simple things like, mm-hmm. what kind of licensing should my preprint require? There's difficult language, I don't know. Who should I find to help me with this? I'll just click something and then, you know, I have my <laughs> article published. And, and this is 
and it, this is also tedious and it takes time. That's this the really small steps. I mean, ethical approval, it, it's, it's a lot of time. But the reason why this project is so important to me is because it makes visible exactly that process. And uh, I wouldn't do it any other way because the hiccups are really part of the process of showing how difficult it is and that sometimes um, being open about the process is more important than the technical element of being open just you know sharing data you can do that in many different ways uh, and, and I think so this is for me this is a way to show what it really means how difficult it is and that it takes a lot of time and I'm really great that the project is, is there and it's facilitated so that we can experience that. Yeah, but you do learn from the happy little accidents along the way. Yeah, exactly. And, and also, I, I had a lot of fun actually in the beginning because everybody was excited and we were setting up this questionnaire and everybody was thinking about the content. And then I remember saying, well, it's open science. Shouldn't we pre-register? And then... People who were doing this for the first time were like, oh, right, yeah, yeah, we should. Uh, how does it work, actually? <laughs> okay, uh, there are all these websites. So it was also really fun to see that. And at, and at some point I said, well, this is a questionnaire. It means it's human participants, so we should have ethical agreement. Uh, who are, what ethical committee are we going to approach? Oh, all right, yeah, yeah, we should... Uh, definitely uh, do that. So it was really fun also to do this with academics from completely different disciplines because because of the the learning curve that was achieved here together. And also I learned that there's much more possible to open up than, than I would eventually have thought because I'm really protective of the organizations and the participants that I work with. This is sort of my natural tendency. And then I learned that there's so much more possible to open up and that opening up data and process is also open science. Yeah. Maybe let's uh, continue on to what I'm already hearing, that you guys worked in quite a large team. Initially, you wanted to do this podcast with everybody, but I had to sort of uh, break uh, break that idea down because that would be too, like, that would be too noisy in a podcast. With uh, But the, there were five or six people involved in this project. And uh, where, where did they come from? How did they interact? Perhaps you did. You can tell me something about that. Yes, yeah, so we were in a, a team with six uh, six people when we started, and there were people from the open science movement, and there were people, um, well, Rut from from her expertise uh, of the social sciences, and we had people from the faculty of economics or uh, Rebo. I don't I don't know the English uh, <laughs> the, the English name now of the of this faculty. So it was a quite a different mix, I think. So. For me, I come from a biomedical background, so uh, that's quite different, I think, than uh, than this this type of research. So for me, this was also a really nice experience. What Ruth was saying with pre-registration, I have experience with pre-registration, but in a completely different field, so it makes it completely different as well. And then we have people from our open science platform, so that's also already a very diverse group, but open science minded. But they all bring different expertise. So we had Joost uh, Joost de Laat from uh, the School of Governance and Economics, now I, now I remember, uh, and uh, Sander Thomas, which is from the same uh, faculty as uh, Rutte is, 
and Luke Brinkman, of course, as uh, co-founder of the Open Science Community uh, and a student assistant in the beginning, uh, Daniel Hemert, who helped us, but he uh, moved on and started his PhD uh, in Leuven. And now we have Dominique Reishauer, who's a research assistant and is helping us out now with the questionnaire and also with the second one that we're going to send out, hopefully, in a few months. That sounds like a lot of people and a lot of people you have to give credit to. At least that is the current academic standard. Uh, I imagine that it's not easy to transition in that sense. So how did you come up with ways of dividing credit when there's people coming in, coming out, are from different disciplines with different... Uh, for, for everybody in the team, I think the where you publish is something that is of a completely different importance, right? How did you cope with these things, Rut? Well... Actually, within the team, I must say that that was relatively easy. I mean, of course, this is data that we can perhaps in the future publish in a, in a, in a classic peer-reviewed academic journal. But with regards to the monitor itself, um, I think we just went with an alphabetic order of participation in terms of the author list and then added the tasks uh, that everyone did. And um, I think when you are working in a team for so long, you know what to give people credit for. And you have such a unique combination of expertise. Mm -hmm. It takes time to get that together. But in the end, I would say, I'm, I'm not sure whether Judith feels the same. It, it's, it's pretty clear how we complement each other on, on the tasks that are involved, because really... I can't do what Judith does, and there are things that, that I do that sh she doesn't know how to do. So it's pretty straightforward. I mean, in the, in the beginning, it takes long to, to get a common sense of things. But once that is laid out, it's pretty clear what the individual contributions to the team are. Yeah. And so when you work in interdisciplinary or even like uh, with teams of people from completely different backgrounds and other employments, you sometimes run into the fact that you find out that you're not actually talking about the same thing when you're using the same word, right? And especially such a thing like open science, this is a, a movement that's relatively young, and there's a lot of things in there that have completely different meaning to other people, to, to different people who get into the project. Did you find situations like this, and what did you do, Judith? Yes, so I think, uh, indeed... Uh, yeah, the the first thing that comes up with me is the the metadata discussion. So, uh, for me, this has I have an idea of what metadata is, but there that that's not the same for everyone. I think if you using this term and people are interpreted in different ways, you get really weird discussions. So first, then you have to get a common sense of what metadata is and how it's used in. Uh, being open about data and sh sharing information about your data, uh, that's important. But to figure that out, that's before you know that you're not talking about the same thing, you're already like <laughs> maybe an hour ahead in your discussion. And then you think, oh, we have a different concept of what metadata is. So let's go back and then define uh, what we're meaning and then continue with this discussion. Yeah. In an average research journal, I would say the metadata... That's just a participant section where you describe on, a, you know, the, the demographics of the data. And then there was this fancy word for it. I didn't know. <laughs> Should we publish the metadata? It sounded really 
difficult and, and, and comprehensive, but really when I found out what it really was, it's like, oh, it's like the participant section, but then in a table. Yeah, yeah. it was fun. Yeah, it's just, yeah. And you have descriptive metadata, like just describing what your data set is looking like. For example, for qualitative research, that can be important to have your descriptive metadata open. But if you have quantitative data, you can actually just publish your columns and, and how many participants are in, in all, each of the columns and, and stuff like that. So um, I'm not an expert in that either. I, I know this a little bit because I am involved in the fair data and software track as well. And I talk to the people from the library who are in the data field and are data consultants or help people with these kind of issues. But yeah, to, to get to know these concepts, yeah, you have to, to talk to some experts, I guess. Yeah, and also the other way around, to your subjects, you're sending out this monitor, this survey to the entire university. And as we all know, Utrecht University is a broad university with a lot of different disciplines. And it can, I can imagine, for example, that if you ask a historian about data and you ask about data to like experimental physicists, these people have completely different ideas on what, you're, what you mean. How did you try to sort of prevent too much disagreement coming into your survey? Uh, we discussed a lot about how to um, label and describe the open science practices that we asked about in the in the monitor. Mm -hmm. But there were also already international re uh, uh, surveys out there uh, that we could use as an example. And I think the way that we describe the open science practices now really resonates to all types of scientists and then it's okay that the concept of data means something different there's still the opportunity to share it in some way or to open it up and then to get a sense of the type of research that the academics in the questionnaire who responded to the questionnaire were actually doing we we did ask some questions about that mm -hmm. and then for example um, researchers that work with human data their awareness of, of things like uh, pre-registration uh, is often higher relative to when uh, academics that do not work with human subjects data, and that makes sense. Uh, so you can control for these things and ask about these things, but in the general sense, I think the concepts of open science, as we ask them in the, in the questionnaire, they resonate to all types of scientists. Maybe let's get to the results a little bit, because we you already communicated some about it. I read some stuff on the Utrecht website and you had a preprint. Maybe you can sort of take us through the main initial insights, Rut. Yeah, so um, the questionnaire was sent out to uh, all the academics from Utrecht University and the uh, Utrecht Medical Center. And um, about 400 participants responded in a way that we could actually analyze their data, which is only 7% as an estimation of the total asked population. So that is the first thing that I need to say, even though it's really boring. Um, this, this particular subset, this small sample, is not representative of the entire population. And that is also due to corona, because we asked the survey in the corona wave, the first one. So having said that, disclaimer, what we did was ask academics about their awareness, attitudes and behaviors just indeed to set a benchmark. So where do academics stand? What we see is that the uh, academics in this sample are really highly aware 
of all the open science activities that we asked about. Particularly open access publishing is something that almost 100% mm -hmm. of our sample was aware of and considered very important. Notably, only 64% had ever heard of team science, which means that almost a third of the academics indicated I've never heard, I, I didn't know this was an open science practice. It doesn't mean that they're not doing it, but mm -hmm. it, 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 it does mean that being aware of the fact that that is an open science practice, uh, that is something that one third of our probably highly invested subsample wasn't really aware of. So that was a really an insight. I think the first one was, that was noticeable. And then the second one is that even though all the academics were really positive about almost all open science practices, there was a large attitude behavior gap. So the extent to which these attitudes, so, so uh, answers to the question, I think this is really important for my research to do this, they didn't always translate into actual behavior. I apply this in my research mm -hmm. or I have applied this in my research. And that is uh, remarkable. So there is this motivation, there's this promise, there's the potential but the act actual practice or the behavior, I think that is really something that's, um, that's a learning point. That's something that we can do better to, to close that gap. For example, data sharing. Almost half of the sample indicated, I've never done that. Preprints, also half of the sample indicated, I've never really done that. No. Um, Pre-registration, 70%. I've never done it. So these are things that, that there's really a gain to make there. Um, and what we also saw what what was that particularly PhD students, they reported these largest gaps. So they are really positive about the promises of open science, about the activities, but to translate that into their type of work and the way probably also that they are rewarded that is difficult, particularly yeah. with, uh, with respect to more collaborative open science practices. That's a, also a really interesting insight as compared to the NWO, Open Science Monitor, and also the PNN Monitor of the Promoveni Network Nederland. They both also had very similar results of the, the young generation of PhDs all being very, very willing, but finding some kind of drawback or, or maybe a hurdle into actually doing it. Do you have any idea what the barrier is to actually engaging in the open science activities. Judith? Well, there's a few barriers also that we asked uh, in our monitor. I think one is time and actually the recognition and rewards for what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And I, if I remember correctly from the PNN survey um, that was specific for the PhD students there, I think getting room from your supervisor to engage in these practices is one of the limitations to actually do it, yes or no. And it, it's more from stories that you hear around. Like if you hear people who are actually really engaging with open science and um, being able to do all these kind of practices, usually they say, I was very lucky with my supervisor because mm. he gave me he gave me space um, and he gave me the opportunity to do these kind of things. But those are just the stories, right? So we didn't get that into our monitor per se specifically uh, now. Maybe looking yeah. forward, because uh, this was a monitor that was uh, set out the survey in the beginning of the corona crisis. Jesus, that's almost two years ago. Mm -hmm. um, I know that you're planning 
for a next iteration of this monitor. What are things that you this time really want to get into, need, want to know more about? And maybe also what do you think has changed in the course of two years? What are your expectations, Brett? Well, the first thing that we will definitely add to the current monitor is that we add open science practices with regards to education, because mm -hmm. they, they have been focusing very much on the activities uh, as a researcher, uh, also public engagement and, and stakeholder involvement were part of the, of the first monitor. But how open science plays a role in education, uh, both teaching students about it, but also sharing and using educational materials in an open, open science manner. Those are things that we're going to add. And another element that is going to be central, and we are now working on how to design that, is this, this aspect of team science, that we noticed that um, collaborative team science practices, particularly for young academics with precarious positions, uh, is often not yet felt as, as part of a reward system. That's not something that you can get a permanent contract with because you have to show that you as an individual scientist have what it takes mm -hmm. uh, to get that permanent job. Um, so what is the meaning of team science, particularly for a young generation of academics? How can you reward that better? Also, that role of the supervisor that, that Judith already alluded to as a key player in facilitating time and support for open science activities. Those are the things that we really want to focus on. Maybe I can add to that yeah. because... Um, we were indeed very surprised that the team science aspect was not very um, highly aware among our respondents. But last year, the track of our program uh, recognition and awards came with a vision on new, on this new triple model, and it has got a lot of attention. So we want to know if people are more aware and whether they feel more that team science is part of the open science movement, and if this triple can actually help also to decrease this attitude behavior gap. And I think what I also want to add that we are, uh, what I think that goes in line with this team uh, aspect is that we firstly only send out this questionnaire to the academic staff, but mm. we want to also send it out to support staff. For now, we want to focus on certain types of support staff, but uh, I'm not sure if you discussed it in this podcast, but the gray area of, of for example, software engineers, which are really part of an of a team and have a very specific role in 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 the research process, we also want to include them because they might be key players in opening up software, for example. Yeah. So we'll be expecting another iteration of the Open Science Monitor in 2022. Uh, when we know when that is, we'll let you know, of course. I thank you very much, both of you, for this interview today. And I have to close with this last question. Do you have an open science guilty pleasure, Judith? Yeah, you, you asked me to think about this. And I was thinking of um, the preclinicaltrials.eu where I'm involved in. And you were saying something about that you're, you can track these things. And that's something that I do. I go to this website and check how many protocols are uploaded. So how many pre-registrations are there? <laughs> you can actually see how many there are under embargo or, and how many are actually open, open to everyone. So that's something that I do uh, regularly. So maybe that's my guilty pleasure. Like a drug. Yeah. <laughs> Ruth. 
I, you also asked me to think about this and I don't know, um, the thing, it, this is not really a guilty pleasure, but what I do, since I know that open science is something that you can do and that's, it's, it, it broadens up what you can do as a scientist or as an academic, there's a sense of relief because I really like public engagement. Mm -hmm. And I like to translate uh, academic products into something accessible for a broader audience. So, and this is uh, probably the guilty pleasure part, to be able to write it in your CV, to add an extra box with nice interviews. And that, that, that what we're doing right now is actually part of, of your work as an academic. That gives me a really good feeling that I can actually add to the list. I now can create new lists in my CV filled with all these open science practices. And that, yeah. that makes me really happy. I don't know if that's a guilty pleasure, but yeah. I'll count it as one because it <laughs> makes it shows that open science makes life more fun. And that's yeah. what this podcast is all about. Thank you very much, both of you. Perhaps we'll see you sometime in the future. Grace, thank you. You've been listening to the Road to Open Science podcast. Road to Open Science is an initiative from the Utrecht Young Academy and supported by the Open Science Platform at Utrecht University. This episode was edited by me, Lieven Heremans. Please subscribe to the podcast feed to stay up to date.